Uh, sure hope you're doing well. I'm going to have a word of prayer. Get started. Thank you, Lord, so much for the beauty of this day and uh, the high honor I have of sharing with these good folks what you've laid on my heart. I pray over the next few moments you would uh, make our hearts fertile soil um, as we talk about some maybe some difficult ideas, uh, some deep ideas. Lord, I, I think you all this isn't by chance. I think you made this appointment for all of us. And so um, have your way and uh, let us do not, not do anything that gets in the way of what you might want to do in our hearts and lives in the next few moments. And we'll give you great praise. When we leave this place, we'll be so excited. We're going to be a little bit more like you in your name. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, I am on a plane, and uh, planes don't bother me at all, and so usually planes are places for me to take a nap. And so um, I also, on a plane, just to let you know how beautiful this pastor's heart is when I'm on a plane, what I try to do is communicate that I don't want to talk to anybody. And so uh, what I'll normally do, and you guys know, this is the positioning, so we'll get on the plane, I get in the seat, and I take and cross my arms, universal language that I don't want to talk to you like some of you are doing now, universal language, and then I cross my legs, and then I lean against the side, and I close my eyes, okay? Anybody knows that's don't talk to him. That's what that means. So, but in the meantime, I'm doing all that. I'm on the plane, but I'm keeping one eye open to see who's going to be sitting beside me, right? And so they're coming down the aisle, and all that kind of thing I'm watching, and here comes this young lady from a different generation than I am, and sure enough, she sits right beside me, so now she's safe in her seat. I'm buckled in, Assume the pastoral position, you know, like this and like this. And so I'm trying to sleep. And then she is apparently totally ignorant about common courtesy and the ways of society. So she asks the dreaded question, which has to do with why I'm pretending to sleep to begin with. And she says, so what do you do? Now, I don't know what you do for a living, but you have a pretty good idea what I do for a living. And so when I say to people I'm a pastor, I might as well have said, well, I've had the stomach flu for the last three days. Could you hand me that vomit bag? You know, that's kind of what I what usually is responded to. But um, so I say I'm a pastor and surprise, surprise, I say, well, I'm a pastor. And I turn to go back and she was actually intrigued by that. She liked me, and so it was so wonderful, And because what she said was, wow, so you're a spiritual man. And I said, well, I don't know if you asked my wife, but yeah, that's kind of what I do. I kind of stay on a hotline to God all the time. And so I briefly shared with her what I do, and then um, she says, well, what do you believe about God? Now, I would like to tell you at that point, I delivered like four spiritual laws and took an offering and converted her in the moment. That's not what happened just being totally transparent with you, because the girl I'm talking to actually may be in our community today. I don't know. But but what I did was kind of gave her a thumbnail version of Jesus to kind of get her off my back. Isn't that horrible? I know. So I kind of said, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He loved me, and I gave my heart to him. And uh, she keeps engaging. Well, what do you mean by that? Oh, oh crap. You know? So anyway, I said, well, here's I get paid for this normally. I just want you to know, you know, but anyway... So uh, so we start talking, and I, I share with her about how I feel about God. And then I decided to switch it around and, and uh, started talking to her about how she relates to God. And what really ticked me off in hindsight about this, I'm the one that's supposed to evangelize her. But she's tricking me into evangelizing her. And I just think that's out of bounds. But anyway, she's doing that. And so I asked her, I said, so how, how do you relate to God? And she said to me, I'm experimenting with channeling. I had no idea what that was. So I said, what's your favorite channel? (laughs) I was expecting ESPN, history. Oh, no, no. Well, my grandmother. Your grandmother? (laughs) Yes, she died a number of years ago. 
So just to bring everybody up to speed, here's what she was doing. She was apparently trying to channel Granny in the attempt to connect to the next life through her dead relatives. Now, sensitivity is not my strong point, and so I had to figure out how to tell her, well, that's stupid, because that's kind of where I was on that whole thing, and I was a little freaked out by the whole thing. And so she talked to me about how she's trying to connect to the grandma and through grandma and channeling through grandma. And I said, well, how's that working out for you? Well, it's kind of a, kind of a hit and miss sort of thing. I said, I'll bet she did. <laughs> but anyway, um, kind of had that conversation with her. And then I said, well, you know, I, 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 can, I think I'm connected to the next life as well. But I can't do it to any of my dead family members or friends or pets. And she goes, well, how do you connect to the next life? And I said, I connect through, through Jesus Christ. And she says, how's that work? And I told her, I said, well, Jesus died for my sin, but the cool thing about Jesus is he came back to life. He was resurrected, and, uh, and then he didn't die again, and so I shared with her about all that. So now when I pray, I'm actually talking to him, and she was really kind of into that idea and really excited about that, asked me all kinds of questions. So all that was going on, and it was wonderful and all that great thing, and then, then we started to lead in deep plane, and I was still sort of freaked out by her. I mean, she's talking to her grandma, and, um, and she kind of gave me this kind of this weird vibe. So uh, I just said, hey, great to meet you, blah, 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 and, and I started heading out. And I think I was in Air- Atlanta Airport. If you've ever been to Atlanta Airport, um, you got to get to your next gate. So it's like, take the tram, the roller coaster, and a boat, and then you finally get to your, to your next gate. And so I did all those things. I got to the next gate. I'm sitting at the next gate, and uh, I got another hour, so I can either read my Bible or take a nap. So I decide I'm going to take a nap for another hour. So I got there. I'm laying and sitting there in the sun, kind of chilled back on my head like this. And all of a sudden, a shadow comes into my sun. Now, I just had a conversation about dead granny talking to people. So I mean, it did freak me out a good bit. So again, I cracked my eye to see what kind of move I would have to do and who I'd have to kill to, to kind of survive what I was getting ready to experience, you know. Well, I cracked my eye. There was that girl holding a bouquet of flowers. I thought she was a premonition or something. I didn't know if it was real or not. So I kind of did this, you know, just to make sure, blink my eyes. And sure enough, it was her. And she was smiling. And she apparently had found me in the airport, stalked me in the airport, uh, and wanted just to thank me for helping her in her enlightenment. And it wasn't, and then she gave me those flowers, which I promptly took home and gave to Lisa and told how much I love her, which worked really well until this very moment right now. Then that's all. I'll need a couch somewhere tonight. But anyway, that, that, that's where those came from. And, um, and so that all, that all was wonderful. Now, here's why I tell you all that. Last week, I, added, I asked you a couple questions that have to do with the story I told you about the lady on the airplane. And it's actually as, as far-fetched as that may be for some people, it's actually a conversation that all of us are having. And here's the questions I asked. Do you have a relationship with God? And if so, what does that relationship look like? I think everybody ought to have answers to, this, to these questions. Do you have a relationship with God? And that's a yes or a no. And so all of us in the room can say that. And then what does it look like? Well, is it channeling? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it something else? Is it meditation? Who knows? For me, a long time, I kind of wanted to go after this relationship with God thing, and I, word, I studied Scripture to learn about who God is, but I had these two very intimidating verses to me that, to be honest, kind of made me feel like I was never going to make it. So here's the first verse that really kind of kept me away from God for a while, and it was this. God said in Leviticus, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when I heard that, I was like, I'm done. 
I can't do that. And then the second one, Jesus is teaching Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and he said it this way. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me be very clear. If this whole relating to God business is all about how perfect I can make myself and how holy I can make myself, I'm out. Because I know I can't do either one of those things. I know I can't make myself either one of those things. I'm not perfect, and I never will be left up to my own ability. I'm certainly not holy, and if all holiness is is me trying to make myself look and smell right, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I will never be able to be holy. So then last week, we sort of gained some hope when we look at these two words, and we realized that the perfect, it's not what we think in 21st century without flaw. Being perfect actually means to be made complete or to mature. So now what Jesus is actually saying is be made mature, be made complete as your heavenly Father is complete. So when that's on the table, it starts to think a little different because what he's saying is we can be made into something we're not. We can be made holy, we can be made complete, but you're not going to be able to do it in and of yourself. And what a relief it was to discover this. Some of you, this next thing on the TV may be why you're here today. I don't know. But being perfect in this life isn't about performance. It's always about your affections. It's not about how perfect you can live this life. It's about who you love and what you love and how you love. That's what this is all about. Holiness is about loving God and being loved by God and then maturing and growing in that love. And here's the thing. When we mature and to grow in that love, as God teaches us and redefines what love is, we love each other better. That, that plays out right here. It's easy to love some of you because we're friends. We do life together and, and we kind of like the same teams and we have a lot of common interests. So love is easy. But this love actually supersedes that. And now we're actually able to love people that have wronged us, people that have hurt us, people that won't forgive us, or people we've wronged because of what God is doing in us. Holiness is not about performance, but about affections. This whole process of how we're being made perfect, how we're being made holy, theologians would call that the process of sanctification or the process of being made holy. I kind of put this in Tom language last week. I don't know if it's helpful to you, but just to remind you. So it's kind of like we're at a dance with God. And dance, God comes up and says, hey, Tom, do you want to dance? That's kind of the salvation point. See, God won't force himself on anybody. He won't force that relationship. And so you can decide whether or not you want that relationship. And you'll say, yeah, God, I'd like to dance with you. Or no, God, I don't want to dance. This is the initial point. But then we start dancing with God. We say yes, like we maybe knelt at an altar or maybe we gave him our heart to Jesus in a service like this or somewhere else. And, but we get up from that altar and we go back and we're still doing life with the same baggage we had to begin with. And a lot of times at this point, people think it didn't work. So like we come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, would you please be my savior? But then there's a whole lot of other things still going on in our lives that's sort of contrary to who we think Jesus wants us to be. Is this making sense to everybody? And so then the second thing is this, that God invites us to dance, and the second decision we have to make is who's going to lead that dance? So, hey, do you want to dance? Yeah, God, I want to dance here. Let me lead, and that's going to go awkward. The first question is, do you want a Savior? The second question is, do you want a Lord? Do you want someone to surrender your life to, all of your life, 
You have someone that you want to live your life for outside of who you are. And eventually, through these awkward years of deciding who's going to lead your life, who's going to lead your marriage, who's going to lead your family, who's going to lead your job, eventually you can get to a point where you surrender and say, you know what, God, you lead for the rest of my life. Whatever that looks like, I want you to lead this dance. I'm going to do everything I can to follow in whatever you're asking me to do. See, this is the process of being made perfect, being made mature, being made complete. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then someday we all die. <laughs> Don't want to bring you down, but it, it happens. And then when we all die, I think at that point everybody gets to dance because I'm a terrible dancer, but in heaven I'm going to be really good. And, uh, and so in heaven, you know, we're all going to be able to dance and, and we'll be able to dance with God because we'll be able to see him fully and we'll be able to see ourselves fully. So this whole process, I think, kind of points to the fact there is a way that people relate to God. There is a way that people grow deeper in their walk with God. So again, as you look at this, let me ask you a question. Do you have a relationship with God? And if so, what does it look like? Has God asked you to dance and you said yes? Or God has you dance and said no? Is God leading your dance? Are you still leading the dance? Are you learning to let God lead? Well, the scripture offers all kinds of metaphors for how a person relates to God. And over the next two weeks, we're going to go through all of these different metaphors of how a person relates to God. But this is my point before I share with you the first one. A person's relationship with God, friends, is not stagnant. It's an organic, progressive thing. It's a deepening. So as you walk with God, your relationship with him should deepen, should grow in intimacy and meaning and power. That's what a relationship with God looks like. It was never meant to kind of just be like, oh, I'm in, oh, I'm out. It's not that. It's a deepening. So I hope you'll kind of see that. Let me give you a couple of metaphors. Uh, someday, something I'm not proud of, uh, but when I was a teenager, I actually got arrested and uh, when I was arrested, uh, I was arrested for breaking the law. What I did is none of your business. Uh, but I broke the law, and I got caught. I see some of you Googling it right now. Just chill out for a minute, okay? I got caught. I end up in court. And so I'm in court, and I'm seated beside the arresting officer who, 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 who put the cuffs on me or whatever he did. And um, the, I'm sitting there in the courtroom, and the judge says, uh, announced the case. He says, the state versus Thomas L. Harding. And the judge then turned to the prosecuting attorney and uh, other people in the room. He says, does Mr. Harding have a defender? And uh, I didn't. The prosecuting attorney says, no, Mr. Harding didn't have, any, didn't have a lawyer, didn't have a defender. Well, if you've ever been in that situation, and from the looks of you, several of you have, um, you, there's like a stable of lawyers over here, and so they pick one of them. They say, oh, we'll pick that lawyer. And so they pick one, and they, and they assign them to you. And that's what the judge did. He looked over there at the people, and he says, okay, you there, you go be Tom's lawyer. So the dude comes over, and he sits down beside me, and he looks me in the eye, kind of have this moment like where we have a discussion, and he looks me in the eye, and he says, uh, Mr. Harding, so this all comes down to one simple question I want to ask you, are you guilty? Now, I'm scared to death uh, because, because of what I had done and getting caught and all that kinds of stuff. And so uh, when he said that, uh, I... I didn't have any defense. I said, yes, I did it. No doubt I did it. And so the lawyer looked at me in the eye and he said, okay. He said, well, the best thing that we can really do, I think, is you should just kind of throw yourself at the mercy of the court and hope the judge is having a good day. Great plan. (laughs) 
And so um, I'm this young teen, don't have a clue about courtrooms and due process, but out of all the folks that were in that room, the only one that really seemed to be for me was this public defender that I had just been assigned. So when he said, I think you better plead guilty, throw yourself in the mercy of the court, I believed him. And so I did. So my attorney says to the judge, has, the judge has his both stand, judge says, how do you plead? And my attorney says, my client, my client pleads guilty. Now, saying that privately between me and him felt one way, but man, when that was echoed across the courtroom with the judge and all these other people in there, dude, I thought, man, I'm going to get the chair. I mean, this is, this is a horrible scenario that's going on right now, you know? And so, and so uh, this is kind of ominous. And so I couldn't look at anybody in the moment. I, I just kind of looked at my shoes because I was embarrassed and all that kind of stuff. And then something extraordinary happened. My attorney continues to speak, and my attorney says, Hey, Dad, if you'll just turn Mr. Harding over to me and let me take care of him, I'll see he never appears in your court again. And I thought, oh, dookie. It wasn't dookie, but that's Sunday morning talk. It was, oh, man, that my lawyer just called the judge daddy. I'm pretty sure you cannot do that and not get the chair. But sure enough, he had. He said, hey, Dad, hey, Pop, what up? You know, I don't know what was happening, but that's the way it felt. And I knew I was in trouble. But here's the thing. As it turns out, my lawyer really was the judge's son. (laughs) And so when he said, Dad, he said, I got him. If you'll just hand him over to me and I'll take care of him. The dad said, that's that's fine. You go ahead and do that. That'd be fine. Now, I should tell you, the story I just heard, just share with you, didn't actually happen in a county or state or federal court. It actually happened in a small church when I was a young teenager. The conviction that I had was from the person of the Holy Spirit that showed me all the things that I had indeed done wrong in my life, and I had done them wrong, no doubt about it. And maybe by now you're picking up that my, my lawyer, the one who was pleading my case, was actually Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the judge, of course, was God the Father himself. And that's the first metaphor for, I think, how people relate to God. It's a metaphor of a courtroom. That's how a lot of you are relating to God right now. It's all about guilt and innocence in your mind. It's the most basic understanding of how someone relates to God. The idea is that God is the judge, and I'm on trial, and I spend the rest of my life trying to pile up good things, hope that the God is merciful to me when I face him. And it's actually in the Bible, this metaphor. The book of James says this. It says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. That's God. Next, he's in the Old Testament too. Isaiah says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It's he who will save us. Now, I suspect, and maybe I'm wrong, but when it comes to God, that's a lot of us in this room right here. The idea is we'll do just enough We'll do just enough, or maybe we'll point to a day or point to an activity or point to something we do in order to make God happy. And that's a significant thing. That's an important thing. But unfortunately, this metaphor for God is controlling so much of our society and so much of church world right now. And here's why. This metaphor for God is like you never win. Here's what I mean. In our churches, we seem to be preaching the gospel of Christ as a way to find freedom from the consequences of our sin rather than freedom from the sin that caused those consequences. Do you follow what I just said? It's kind of like I go out and screw up, and then I say, oh, God, can you fix this? Well, maybe God can fix that, but maybe God can fix the whole thing that caused me to screw up to begin with. And that's what he's saying. 
We treat God like he's medicine. Oh, I woke up with a guilt headache. Take two pills of God and call you in the morning. That's kind of how we do this. And this whole courtroom model for relating to God is really based on these two questions. What do I do with guilt I have? And what's going to happen to me in the next world, the next life when I die? Now, those are legit questions. I get it. I really do. And I believe Christianity has answers for those things. Jesus forgives sin and guilt and all that. And for those who are forgiven, I think we have the hope of heaven. The error comes when we who follow God have made these two questions the central part of our faith. And it is a boring, fear-filled, insecure kind of faith. It's like trying never to make God mad and then hope when I die. I don't know if it's possible, but maybe when I die, there'll be enough good things that God won't cause bad things to me to happen. Here's the thing. Even though this seems to dominate Christianity, at least in my opinion these days, before the courtroom metaphor was ever talked about in Scripture, the first metaphor for how we were supposed to relate to God wasn't a courtroom at all. It was actually friendship. That's how this whole thing began. It was actually to be friends. Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This is what God desired. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Come back to that in a moment. Look at this little addition. I just think it's a beautiful picture. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that kind of neat that it's in there? Instead of like in the heat of the day. Or, isn't it cool? Anyway. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let me tell you what happened. Adam and Eve had done the very thing God said don't do. So now they're hiding from God. But that word walk actually means, get this, ready? To be in continual conversation. So the first metaphor for how we relate to God is actually to be in continual conversation, to walk with as a friend would, to walk with God. Abraham never knew the Ten Commandments. He'd never read the Scripture, ever, because they didn't exist. But when you come to the book of James and it talks about who Abraham is, listen to this. The Scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. There's a metaphor for Scripture. There's a metaphor for God. And that word friend it's the same root word that we use for Philadelphia or, or brotherly love. You follow? So like, you know, me and Kevin would be friends or me and Tom or me and Adam. You know, we're, we're friends. That would be what that is. Same thing, same word. So the key word in the book of Genesis isn't obey, believe, or judgment. The key word is actually walk, abide, friend, so Scripture introduces us to God. The metaphor it gives is friendship. That's the word it gives. Do you remember what Jesus said about the greatest kind of love? Do you remember that? This is from John 15. Greater love has nobody than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Look at this. Look at this. These are in red in your Scripture. This is Jesus speaking to us directly. This is what he says. You are my friend. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants. In other words, you're not just trying to fulfill some legal obligation here. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know my ma the master's business. But instead, he says, I'm calling you friend. You and me, we're on the same team. We're going to take all comers on. I call you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. 
courtroom's a metaphor, and then friendship, man. But look at this. It even gets more intimate than that. Look at this. As we move through Exodus, another metaphor enters Scripture. This time, it's a metaphor of family, of how we to relate to God. Moses gets called to go and set the people free, and he's scared. And so he says, what am I supposed to tell Pharaoh? You remember how God responded to him? Exodus 4, 22. God says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn child. And I told you, let my child go so he may worship me. Now, don't miss this one. This is, this is it's on now. Because <laughs> what, what God is saying to the enemies of his people you're not the enemies, you're his people. So the enemies of his people, is he saying this, don't you touch my boy. (laughs) Don't you touch my girl. Or you can't touch this. Whatever you want to say, but that's what he's saying right now in this moment. That's what he's saying. You think about that. You think about that in the week you had, the week I had, the ups, the downs, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the temptation. You had a God who his understanding of relating to you is, you can't touch that boy. <laughs> can't touch him. Let him go so he can worship me. This is where the whole idea of family begins. And it carries all the way through the New Testament. Jesus is asked one day, how do you relate to God? And Jesus said, Well, when I talk to God, I start with this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the way you should relate to God. And this is huge, at least to me. Because what it means is God the Father wants to relate to us as he does to Jesus, his own son. I don't know where you're relating to God, but this is a whole lot more intimate than what's down here. And through the metaphor, God is teaching us that we have more than just a legal standing with God. We are actually part of a brand new family. Isn't that beautiful? Turn to your neighbor and say, we're part of a brand new family. Go ahead, say it, say it. Come on, doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, that's a good thing, isn't it? Part of a brand new family. Let me give you one more, and then I'll save the other two for next week. That's a metaphor of marriage. It's in the Bible. Did you know that? How you relate to God. That's one of the metaphors it uses. The most intimate human relationship possible. Describes how you relate to God. Where? Let me just show you one. This is at the end of the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. I think Revelation might have 22 chapters, and this is the 21st chapter, and this is what it says. I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a... And look at here. One day I'm going to be good looking, (laughs) beautifully dressed for her husband. Let's see the next one. And I heard a loud voice. Listen, some of you, man, you had a rough week. Dial this in. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people and he will dwell. So it's, it's in here. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here it comes, watch this. And he will wipe every stinking tear from their eyes. 
There is not going to be any more death, mourning, crying, pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The most intimate relationship I have in my life, you will have in your life or may have, as human beings, the husband and wife is used to, as a growing symbol of this greater, deeper, and more intimate relationship that is available with God. So Lisa and I will walk property every so often at our house. And there are times when we talk and there are times when we don't. But when she and I are walking together, we're still talking. Does that make sense? Because we've been married now for 30 years. And so we got this point where we can actually finish each other's sentences. And, and like she knows what I'm thinking or I know what she's thinking without even having to say it, which is really cool when I do it, but sort of obnoxious when she does it to me. But nonetheless, we can do it. And apparently, the way I understand Scripture, you read it for yourself, I can have that same kind of intimacy and relationship with God that I enjoy with my wife, Lise. So let me ask you this, just looking at it as objective thinking people, when you look at these, relations, these metaphors, what do, you, what do you learn about the God who's put them in place? When you look at these things, one, it wasn't enough for God to just call you a servant, and he could have, but it wasn't enough. Two, God's not looking for subjects in his kingdom to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not what he wants. But what God wants is a personal Mature, completing relationship in each one of us. One that's not based simply on law, but one that arises from a shared spiritual life. And I've been trying all morning long, and to be honest with you, I think I failed all morning long on this, but how do I put that into words? What, what this means is that you and I can connect at a deeper level with God than maybe where some of us have been connecting. And so the illustration I'll give you is of my children, Rachel, Sarah, Thomas. And so when they were small, um, it was easier in some ways, hear me out, because all I had to do was say, do that. And they're like, okay. And then something horrible happens. They get bigger and get opinions. So now it's no longer do it. They're like, can you explain why? You know, that, that kind of conversation. Or is it something that we should maybe talk about kind of conversations? And can I tell you something? As a dad, the love of the little ones is amazing. It's amazing. But when your kids are looking you eyeball to eyeball and they give you their love, that's the chewy chocolate center of life. That's when you know. When they sit down and you don't, I don't want them to just do my opinion. I want to sit there and say, hey, this is going on. What do you think we should do? And for us to dialogue back and forth, well, as near as I can tell, God wants to be not just our judge. He wants to be our heavenly father. And there's two more. But I'm not going to tell you those until next week. There's two more. So all week long, I've been listening to a song. Actually, the last two weeks, I've been listening to a song. I don't know if you've ever heard Corey Asbury or not. He wrote a song 
um, about reckless love or something like that. And that's a great song. Um, enjoy that. But another song he wrote that, that I want to share, and I asked if the team would do it, and, and they graciously said yes, is a, is a song called Born Again by Corey Asbury. And let me just share with you a couple of the verses, and you'll maybe see why I wanted, wanted to do this with you. He says, take me by the hand and walk with me by quiet streams. Walk. Communicate. Be in relationship with. Lead me to points of refreshing. I need to hear the wind and feel the ground beneath my feet. In this last verse, and in the quiet pride of my father's eyes. You get that? When God looks down at you, he doesn't see how screwed up we all are, but he looks down at us with quiet pride. He looks down at Tom and says, that boy, he's never going to be perfect. You know how when you get artwork home from your kids and your kids are terrible at art? And so you get the artwork home and he's like, man, I hope they're good in sports. <laughs> but, you, but you still put it on the fridge, right? You still put it on the fridge, right? Because it's your kid's artwork. I kind of think that's what God does with me. He looks down at Tom, and man, Tom, you, you have so much to grow, son. <laughs> and then he says, but here, you know what? I'm going to put it on the fridge anyway. That's what Corey says. In the quiet pride of my father's eyes, listen, I remember who I am. And when I feel the warmth of my father's smile, it feels like I've been born again. Huh? Some of you. You know what's going to happen in these next few moments? I pray for the first time you're going you're to feel the warmth of your father's smile. And he's going to stick you on his fridge. <laughs> That's probably not a good biblical metaphor. But he's going to stick you on the fridge because he is so proud of you. He's so proud of you. No, you're not perfect. Make no mistake. But that father wants to be intimate with you. And he's called us to that. Jesus, thank you for this challenge in my heart to love you deeper and more fully. Thank you for a safe place like this one to explore what that means for me. I certainly don't claim that this has all been resolved. <laughs> but I am challenged and Lord, I've walked with you long enough now to know the courtroom was needed, but it's not a place I want to stay. And now I can follow you, and as I walk with Lisa on the property, sit with my kids on the front porch, and go through scary places in my life, even, to know there is a God who relates to me as a marriage, as family, as friend. So two people in the room I'd like to address. One, maybe God has invited you to the dance, but you've never said yes. He won't force himself on you. But if you'd like to say yes, that invitation has been issued. It's all through the pages of Scripture. And God's just waiting on you to say, yeah, I want to dance. Second group of people I want to say in the room is this. Some of you have said, yeah, you know, I want to dance. I made that decision when I was a kid or recently. But what God's calling you to 
is a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. He's pulling on your heart. He has something deeper that he wants to take you to. And he's asking you whether or not you're willing to go. What does it mean? Well, it means you live your life according to what Scripture says. It means you seek him with every affection that you have. Yes, how you love your spouse or your friends or your children, how you love yourself, but how you love everybody. And God's calling you to a deeper level of that. And if he is, maybe he's inviting you to be born again as well. Quiet pride of a father's eyes. So listen to what he might say as Heather ministers to us.